It's not the size of the cauldron, it's the motion of the potion. You're listening to the Quibbler Podcast, the Harry Potter book club for apothecaries. That one, ladies and gentlemen, is a most curious little potion called Felix Felicis. It's a funny little potion, Felix Felicis. Desperately tricky to make and disastrous to get wrong. However, if brewed correctly, as this has been, you will find that all your endeavors tend to succeed. At least, until the effects wear off. I'm Heather Pricewright. And I'm Alex Dallenberg. Can you guys hear that loud-ass bird? It's back! It's a different one. It sounds a little different. Okay, well, now we have an autumn loud bird. Hold on for a second. Yeah, there he is. We'll see. We'll have to see if that picks up on the audio. Um, (laughs) Computer, enhance. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, hi, y'all. We are still reading Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, obviously. We are reading this week the chapters called The Half-Blood Prince, so title in the chapter title, and The House of Gaunt. In this podcast, you will, as usual, hear lots of curses cursing not curses both man well yeah it is harry potter curses and cursing and especially this week there's a lot of curses thrown around and some spoilers you will also hear some adult themes this week's adult themes are marginalia performance enhancing drugs economic anxiety social services and used books so my dear alex what happened this week in this week's chapters, classes began again at Hogwarts School for Witchcraft and Wizardry, and somebody is painting in an adjacent apartment, and the fumes are getting to be man, so this might be a wild fucking summary. Yeah, so everyone is registering for courses, which is a little more difficult this year because your placement, the courses you can take depend on how well you did in your OWLs. So we get a little vignette of Neville working out with McGonagall, what he's going to take. He wants to take any WT transfiguration because he's under pressure from his grandmother. But McGonagall says, yeah, that's probably not a good idea. You're not really up to scratch in Transfiguration. It's not that it's not a good idea. She won't let him. Yeah, he didn't she won't qualify. Let him. Yeah, so Neville didn't qualify for Transfiguration. So McGonagall says you should take Charms instead. Neville's kind of bummed out because his grandmother says that's a soft option. McGonagall pays a rare compliment to Neville. I think the first compliment she's ever given him. She says your grandma should be proud of the grandson she has and not the grandson she thinks she wants. So, way to go, McGonagall. Also, his grandma sucked at charms. Yeah. (laughs) As McGonagall reveals, because I guess McGonagall taught Neville's grandmother? No, I think they were classmates. Oh. Yeah. That makes more sense. Right. Okay. Yeah. Augusta Longbottom failed out of charms. So, Neville signs up for charms. Harry finds out that he does get to take potions, after all, because Professor Slughorn will take students with an exceeds expectations, not just an outstanding. So Harry's career path to becoming an Auror is suddenly back on track. Yay! I mean, surprising no one. (laughs) They weren't gonna just be like, never mind, Harry Potter can't be a fucking dark arts fighter. Harry Potter can't do whatever he wants. Always. There's that bird again. Yeah. I know you guys can't hear it, 
But this bird is real fucking loud. It's extremely distracting, actually. I think it's nice. Okay. That's nature, folks. Yeah, indeed. Urban nature, urban wildlife. At least it's not like a raccoon. What does a raccoon say? Oh, sorry. Probably like, what chucka, is chucka, a... chucka, 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 give me your food. I don't know. You think everything makes a sort of chicka chicka sound? Chicka chicka chicka. I don't know. Probably just some kind of weird chattering. I don't know. What does the fox say? Remember when that was a viral video? Yeah, that was, I never thought it was funny. I didn't get it. <laughs> that was one viral video that I didn't understand the appeal of my, even a little. My old boss loved that video. So Harry and Ron end up taking all the same subjects again together. How Ron got and exceeds expectations and potions, I have no idea, but whatever. The trio had their first Defense Against the Dark Arts class with Snape. He's made the Defense Against the Dark Arts classroom look really fucking metal. There's like posters of witches and wizards being tortured and I don't know, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah, it's pretty hardcore. Uh, Snape gives one of his patented super intense course introductions where he's like, oh, the dark arts is like a many-headed beast and if you cut off one head, you'll just be facing an even, like two even more clever, awesome, scary, dark monster heads. Uh, Snape is way more eloquent than how I just put it, but you all get the picture. So for their first lesson, they practiced nonverbal spells. Snape interrupts Harry and Ron to demonstrate on Harry, and Harry reflexively casts a super powerful shield charm that, that knocks Snape flat on his ass. Snape is furious. He says, do you remember me telling you we are practicing nonverbal spells, Potter? Yes, says Harry. Then Snape says, yes, sir, to which Harry says, there's no need to call me sir, professor. Oh, damn, burned. Uh, is that the best Harry burn in the books? Probably. I like when he says, I am the chosen one, but <laughs> this one's also good. This is like a classic sassy Harry burn. Yeah, it is. So Harry gets the tension, but the satisfaction of having utterly owned Snape. The first potions class with Slughorn goes a little bit better. Slughorn shows them various awesome potions, including the love potion, which smells differently to everyone. It smells like what you're attracted to, which in Hermione's case is lawn clippings. And fresh parchment. And fresh parchment, so. She just likes a clean, smart boy. Neither <laughs> of which Ron is. Does he just like... He's a messy, dumb boy. <laughs> so I don't get it at all. Yeah, Hermione should actually be like a Quidditch locker room. Yeah, exactly. Ew, which, disgusting. Actually, no, that wouldn't be hot. Yeah, but that's basically Ron. Or Victor Crumb. Yeah, overall. You know. I mean, I think if it... Maybe if, parchment. What do you think actual Ron's love potion smells like? Ink? Probably... Yeah. Like... No, honestly, it smells like fucking Kippers. dinner. Yeah. yeah. It just smells like giant mouthfuls of eggs and sausage. And like, Ron's like, I smell a full English breakfast. <laughs> no, I mean what Ron smells like. Oh, what, what Ron, Hermione yeah. would smell. Yeah. Hermione would smell a full English. Exactly. But anyway, Harry smells treacle tart and like a flowery scent that he thinks came from the burrow. So... Whoa! Slughorn also shows them a bubbling gold substance that he reveals as 
Felix Felicis, or Liquid Luck. Two tablespoons taken with breakfast, and you'll have a perfect day. All your efforts will succeed, it's fucking amazing, and it's the prize for whoever brews the best draft of living death. So everybody gets to work. Harry, because he didn't know he was taking potions, doesn't have his textbook. So he gets a secondhand textbook from the, like, storeroom. Slughorn hands him this battered, fucking beat-up textbook, Ron 2. But Harry's is better, for obvious reasons. That are about to be revealed. That are about to be revealed. (laughs) Harry's textbook, he finds out first to his annoyance, and then to his great delight, is filled with all these annotations on every potion recipe in this kind of cramped handwriting. So at first, Harry tries to go with the main instructions, but then as the potion gets more and more difficult to make, he starts following. He, like, basically takes a flyer on following these fucking these dvd extra instructions and uh his potion turns out to be perfect slughorn is amazed and gives him the vial of felix felicis after class hermione's like how the fuck did you do that harry reveals that his potions textbook has all these notes written in the margin which gave him instructions on how to do the potion better Hermione's gets really mad because obviously it's not Harry's own work. Also, Ginny overhears this conversation and says, dude, do not fuck around with books in the Wizarding World that have mysterious writing inside of them. It could be Lord Voldemort, for all you know. Hermione does some tests on the book to see if it's cursed or janky in some way and it falls on the floor and Harry notices that there is an inscription in the corner that says this book is the property of the ba motherfucking half-blood prince so title of the chapter title of the book who is it we will find out together Harry has his first lesson with Dumbledore it turns out that Harry will not be learning spells but they'll be doing exposition for the book basically Harry is going to be learning more information about Lord Voldemort, to which Harry says, I thought you said you were going to tell me everything, and Dumbledore says no, now we're going to be wading through the murky marshes of memory and dealing with conjecture and, like, the fucking unknowability of truth and, you know, fucking true crime shit. So that means that they'll be taking a swim in Dumbledore's fucking memory pool. Not, Not Dumbledore's in this case. Oh, yeah, but it's his pool. It's just other memories. True. So Dumbledore pulls out a vial of brain juice from a guy named Bob Ogden, dumps it in the pensieve, and they take a dive into the past. Bob Ogden was an employee for the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, Dumbledore says. Dumbledore and Harry are zipped back in memory, if not time, to the village of Little Hangleton, where Bob Ogden is approaching a very ramshackle cottage with a dead snake nailed to the door. It's a very fucking grim scene. A wild man drops down out of a tree and confronts Bob with his signature catchphrase, It's morphin' time! Oh my god. Actually, he just says, get out of here. But he's talking in parcel tongue, which is fucking ominous. Uh, he's got a wand and a bloody knife, presumably from fucking nailing that snake to the door. He curses Bob. An old man runs out. This guy's name is Mr. Gaunt. 
Marvolo Gaunt. Marvolo Gaunt. So Gaunt is like old as fuck and kind of looks like a powerful aged monkey. Wait, should you explain that the kid's name is Morphin? Otherwise, oh, the kid's it's Morphin name. time is yeah. really confusing. The kid's name is Morphin also, it turns out, which is why he says it's Morphin time. He indeed does not. <laughs> Ogden says he's from the Ministry of Magic and he has to talk to Marvolo Gaunt about his son. Can we talk about this inside? Gaunt reluctantly consents. The inside of this ramshackle house is like filthy and squalid. There's a there's a ragged young woman at the stove. Uh, we learn that Morphin cursed a villager, and Ogden is here to tell him that that he has to appear at a hearing at the Ministry of Magic to basically answer for this violation of the statute of secrecy. Marvolo is just this fucking, like, racist old codger, basically. He's, like, how to describe this guy. It's a really disturbing scene. This whole tableau is, like, pretty fucked up. He keeps referring to muggles and muggle-borns as, like, dirt-blooded and, and like... filth, dirty, dirt-veined, yeah. He doesn't see anything wrong with morphing, cursing a villager. He's really dismissive and abusive to his daughter, Merope, the young woman at the stove. He calls her a squib. He, like, frightens her into dropping a pot that, like, breaks apart. And it's just, like, it's grim. So Gaunt basically says to Ogden, like, do you know who we are? We belong to this, we're like pure blood going back for centuries, generations. He flashes this fucking ring. He says, this has the, like, Peveril family crest on it. He grabs his daughter, who's wearing a necklace that he says belonged to Salazar Slytherin, almost strangling his daughter in the process. So the Gaunts are descended from Salazar Slytherin, his only living relatives. Uh, during this whole tense scene, they hear horses outside, and a young man named Tom and a woman we assume to be his partner, Cecilia, talking about basically, like, dissing this fucking shack. She's like, can't you tear this place down, Tom? Tom says, we don't own it. I don't know. There's like a long eminent domain discussion. <laughs> Not really. Morphin then mocks Merope, who we learn has a crush on the young man, Tom. Gaunt, hearing this, freaks out and tries to strangle Merope for falling in love with a muggle. Ogden intervenes, which enrages Morphin. He grabs a knife and charges Ogden, shouting once again, it's Morphin time. And Ogden runs out of the house for his life. The memory ends. Dumbledore explains that Ogden later returned with reinforcements. Morphin and Marvolo were arrested and did time in Azkaban. Merope, now left to her own devices, was able to develop her magic more. It turns out she wasn't a squib. She was just scared to death of her fucking horrifying father. <laughs> and she... And we learned that she enchanted Tom into falling in love with her, whether it was through the Imperious Curse or a love potion. It's not clear, but they ended up getting married and having a baby, having a causing a great scandal in the village of Little Hangleton. But then Merope at some point stopped giving Tom the love potion or enchanting him, perhaps thinking that he would come to love her for himself. Instead, coming out of the enchantment, he abandoned Merope while she was still pregnant, or I guess not abandoned, but like left, because he was like, what the fuck just happened? <laughs> and... Then Merope, of course, later dies, and Voldemort... Oh, she's Voldemort's fucking mom. So, 
Tom Marvolo Riddle is yeah. coming into the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Voldemort's got some shit in his past. Dumbledore also explains that they're the last of the Gaunts, this like really ancient wizarding family that is kind of off because they've been intermarrying for generations. Yeah, they're like inbred. Right. Harry also notices that the ring Dumbledore has been wearing is the one that Gaunt flashed to Ogden. And he asks when he got it. Dumbledore says, recently, Harry realizes that he got the ring about the same time he injured his hand. And he asks Dumbledore about that. And Dumbledore's like, no more questions tonight. We have to drag this on for like 500 more pages. And that's what happens in this week's chapters. That was not a very funny summary. No, it's not a very funny couple of chapters. I mean, I guess the first one is like kind of fun, but the Gaunt chapter is deeply upsetting. Dude, it's fucking grim. I love this book. I can't believe I forgot all about this one. This is so fucking good. Maybe that's why you love it. It's like you're reliving Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Well, it's like the experience of reading these books for the first time, which I haven't had up to this point. Oh, that's because, amazing. I mean, yeah, it actually is amazing. And I... I have no idea why I blocked this one out the way I did, but I am thoroughly enjoying this shit. You know, in the wizarding world, I wonder if they really like a book, you could have your friend obliviate you, like obliviate the book out of your mind so that you could read it again for the first time. Except that wizards don't read fiction. Yeah, they don't seem to. There's no entertainment in the wizarding world. They also don't watch movies. Like there's no, they don't seem to have like theater. We get Beetle the Bard in the next book. That's true. They have one Like some book, fairy tales. Basically. But Hermione's never like, oh, Reading hey, I just read this amazing... Yeah. Yeah. Like, Which you'd think she would, given her sort of proclivities. But no, I there's like no entertainment. They just play tricks on each other. <laughs> it's an like, entirely practical joke-based culture. Yeah. So the Weasleys are like the poets of this universe. <laughs> That's kind of nice, actually, to think about. I mean, about. yeah. Yeah, they've, in, they've invested all their creative energy into practical jokes and really disturbing candies. <laughs> anyway, back to this actual couple of chapters. I'm kind of confused as to how NEWT-level classes function. Can you fail out of Hogwarts? Well, yeah. If you don't qualify for any NEWTs, which presumably there are students, like, did Crabbe and Goyle get good enough grades to take anything I have at no the idea. sixth year level? They're so dumb. I don't know. I, maybe there are like remedial classes, but it seems like you could wash out of Hogwarts. I mean, this potions class that the trio take, there's like 12 kids in it. Okay, I have to say, it is utterly impossible to believe that Harry and Ron got into advanced potions, and no other Gryffindors did. Fucking shocking. Parvati is really smart. I'm just assuming that there are at least a couple of fucking Gryffindors that did better than they did in potions. I mean, maybe they tested well enough to get in and decided not to take it. That's true. They all everybody hated Snape. They so all they thought just it would assumed... be Snape. That's true. All the Gryffindors are, like, super-duper traumatized by potions class. So I can understand... I don't know, but you'd think potions would be required for, like, a lot of career tracks. Yeah, it obviously seems to be one of the most useful disciplines in the wizarding world. Snape's abusiveness is actually, like, really limiting the futures of, like, a lot of these kids by the fact that they aren't going to take an eminently applicable course because they are so afraid of the teacher. Yeah. 
That's dark. It is dark. Hogwarts does not super duper set children up for success in a particularly (laughs) successful or effective way. Well, the Wizarding World isn't the most functional society. Also on this topic, it's kind of funny that Neville's grandmother disses charms as being a soft option compared to transfiguration. And I mean, we kind of learned that she hates charms because she flunked out of it. But even so, everybody seems to talk about transfiguration like it is like a tougher and more important class. But everybody uses charms all the time. The summoning spell is a charm. Charms seem like the bread and butter of magic. Seems like incredibly vital. When does Harry transfigure anything? I think you're sort of like conflating usefulness and a difficulty. Okay. Like just because charms is more useful doesn't mean that it's like an intellectually rigorous course. Like I never use calculus and I use what might be taught in something like HOMAC all the time. But we would consider calculus to be a more difficult subject and home ec might be called like a quote soft option i just so it's like usefulness is not what we think about as like the most important thing which i think is stupid i think it's stupid in muggle high schools too like we teach things that no one ever uses and we don't teach things like instead of advanced math classes like whatever math is important math super important but we should probably be teaching like financial math and stats in high school as opposed to like Math that, frankly, unless you go into, like, science or engineering, nobody's fucking using in their daily lives. I mean, so, don't, like, you need the building blocks, though, right? In order to, like... Well, you need the building blocks, but, like, you don't need differential equations to be able to do... I figure out like, compound interest. I was on, I was going to say balance a checkbook, and then I realized that I sounded 80. <laughs> um, we don't balance checkbooks. Well, wizards don't learn math at all, so... But you know what I mean? Like, charms is more useful, but that doesn't mean it's more rigorous, sort of, academically. I just don't understand why everybody is obsessed with transfiguration as, like, the pinnacle of magical academic achievements. Well, I think it also has to do with who teaches it, because Minerva McGonagall is just a really demanding teacher who provides incredibly intellectually challenging lessons like so far the most important instance of transfiguration in this book is when cedric transfigures the rock into a dog which like raises a bunch of interesting metaphysical questions and ethical questions but about doesn't creating end life, up working but doesn't work at all well i mean a summoning works. spell osseo broom trumps rock doggo okay i mean i i agree that charms is more I don't think you're understanding what no, she's I, saying. Yeah, no, I get I get it. I get it. I just uh what is useful in daily life and what is academically challenging are almost always very, very, very far apart. Right, right. Like nobody fucking needs Chaucer or Milton in their everyday lives. I should have taken stats, frankly. Okay, okay. It's just, it's a different thing completely. I mean, everybody should take advanced charms. You're right, because those are very useful and helpful spells. But that's just, it's like a totally different set of arguments and expectations. What's hard versus what's useful and meaningful in daily life. I mean, you took shit that doesn't matter at all. No, I know. No, I definitely did. I'm just, uh... 
Transfiguration seems so impractical to me, but I guess all I just... All of college different... was fairly impractical. Yeah, all right. I guess you're right. Like a liberal arts education is not practical. Okay, so... It's, it's very enriching and it's been... It's helped us be good thinkers, I think, in the world, but like... It's not practical knowledge. So there's something about learning the magic of turning a fucking teacup into a gerbil that's like... Harder. It's harder and it's more like intellectually stimulating. It seems so. But also I think... Because they have to write essays about this. Yeah, I also think... And right, they're like never assigned essays in charms. It's all practical. It's very practical. I also think Augusta Longbottom is just like being an elitist snob. (laughs) about the class that she thinks is like very high-minded because she was shitty at charms well all right fucking transfiguration i do think it has a lot to do with the teaching styles of mcgonagall versus flitwick flitwick just seems like a more accessible educator which you know arguably means he's a better teacher than mcgonagall is because her classes are like impenetrably hard but you know i think it seems like transfiguration is more important because she's kind of self-important about transfiguration all right fair enough but i mean i I take your point i hear what you're saying i just think like i learned lots of impractical shit and very little practical shit in high school and college i just think it's funny because like hogwarts whole orientation seems more toward practical instruction about how to be a witch or wizard like it's not that beyond history of magic there aren't that many of what we would classify as like i guess the liberal arts well yeah but we also don't get to see that many adult wizards like at work so i don't think we have a sense of how often like mr weasley uses transfiguration daily okay because he like de-transfigures things like he undoes all kinds of transfiguration charms put on muggle objects okay all right that makes sense also though i think charms is a weird kind of to be separate because most of these spells are charms they're just charms for different uses like almost everything they use in defense against the dark arts is a charm i don't know i guess i don't understand the difference between a charm and a spell but like there's, spell taxonomy there's all these taxonomies that are t- super obtuse to me so we get this first defense against the dark arts class with snape and we have kind of the ultimate snape question which is is he actually a good teacher at all? He's very smart. <laughs> and sort of compelling in his, like, dark prince way. The dark arts, said Snape, are many, varied, ever-changing, and eternal. Fighting them is like fighting a many-headed monster, which, each time a neck is severed, sprouts a head even fiercer and cleverer than before. You are fighting that which is unfixed, mutating, indestructible. Harry stared at Snape. It was surely one thing to respect the dark arts as a dangerous enemy, another to speak of them as Snape was doing with a loving caress in his voice. Your defenses, said Snape a little louder, must therefore be as flexible and inventive as the arts you seek to undo. These pictures, he indicated a few of them as he swept past, give a fair representation of what happens to those who suffer. For instance, the Cruciatus curse. He waved a hand toward a witch who was clearly shrieking in agony. Feel the Dementor's kiss. A wizard lying, huddled and blank-eyed, slumped against a wall. Or 
provoke the aggression of the Inferius, a bloody mass upon the ground. Yeah, I mean, he gives a hell of a lecture when he's lecturing, but usually he's just like, open your books to page, like, 62 and follow the instructions. Yeah, even in this, he's like, okay, we're going to learn how to do non-vocal spells and then doesn't teach them how to do non-vocal spells. Yeah, he's just, he's like, just okay. like, sit there and try real hard to do something I haven't told you how to do. It's like, I could teach this fucking class. <laughs> yeah, if I could stand in front of the classroom and say like, hey, try to do a spell without saying it, go. That's not <laughs> teaching. He doesn't even, he's like stalking around to just berate them. He doesn't even like provide supplemental instruction. At all. Frankly, or Harry advice. Potter should have stayed in education and become the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher. Yeah, the thing is, Harry is a really good Defense Against the Dark Arts instructor. And you can see them applying a lot of what they learned in the DA from Harry in Snape's shitty non-teaching class. <laughs> I love the school parts because in these books because I think they're really imaginative and it's super fun. But the actual instruction like sequences aren't that convincing. They're very because it's like it's like this in each of these classes where the te like teacher in like fill in the blank subject says, okay, today we're telling the future. Okay, now tell the future. Yeah. Like, it's like really confusing. <laughs> what? I and mean, they're always writing these essays, but I don't know what the essay is about. I don't either. Uh I guess I guess we're just supposed to fill in the blanks with the uh, the power of our own imagination. It would be super boring to read a really long lesson of Snape teaching them how to do nonverbal spells. I, no, I think that'd be kind of interesting. Well, I guess that I mean, I don't know. I think it would be it would slow down the plot for no, sure. No, I I I know why in this middle grade book we can't have that, but it doesn't seem do, like they teach. Much. I do I do wonder because I mean, a lot of magic seems like mindfulness work. Yeah, which and is like, kind of interesting. Focus and intention. It's like some fucking like Jedi shit, basically. Well, and the Jedi training montages are basically the same as this. Not it's just like, no, there's a little bit more Yoda is for a, his theory. a bit more of a theorist and a bit more of a teacher. That's true. Although he is mostly just like, concentrate. I mean, yeah, which All is right. what Snape is doing. Fair enough. But in a meaner way. <laughs> um, we have this fucking wonderful Sir Professor moment. I don't really have anything to say besides it's like, like you said, it's like a bright spot of sassy Harry in all the books. He's just coming into his own, man. Harry has no fucks left to give in this book. He super doesn't. Also, a thing I like about him, the character that's developing of Harry Potter, is he is very funny. Yes. In a kind of caustic way. But he's developed a really fun kind of gallows sense of humor. I like that he just doesn't give a shit about the tension because he must be thinking, what are you going to do to me? Make me carve sentences into my own arm been there done that bitch <laughs> yeah i mean how are you gonna punish harry worse than being like also you have to kill voldemort or else he's gonna murder you what <laughs> he's like there's no more punishments left for harry potter pal he's just fucking yolo mort at this point <laughs> oh my god so in opposition to snape Professor Slughorn actually plans an incredibly engaging lesson, and it seems like a lot of fun to be in his potions class. This is what you would want from a magic class, right? To be shown some kick-ass potions. And to be taught, like, how they work and why and what's interesting about them. And, like, the dosages and, uh... 
Yeah, he teaches like them that. Like, about like, okay. how Felix Felicis works and, like, why you can't just take it every day, which is actually a really interesting description of, like, it kind of veers from making you lucky to making you kind of manic, and it rec- sounds yeah, like. Right, you round the bend into, like, reckless. Yeah, so... Also, he knows how to, like, incentivize good work. Right. Which none of the other teachers have, like, figured out at all. (laughs) He's basically like, pizza party, if you read enough books, except way better. Yeah, the ultimate pizza party. Why don't people drink it all the time, sir? Said Terry Boot eagerly. Because if taken in excess, it causes giddiness, recklessness, and dangerous overconfidence said Slughorn. Too much of a good thing, you know. Highly toxic in large quantities, but taken sparingly and very occasionally. Have you ever taken it, sir? asked Michael Corner with great interest. Twice in my life, said Slughorn. Once when I was twenty-four, once when I was fifty-seven. Two tablespoonfuls taken with breakfast. Two perfect days. He gazed dreamily into the distance. Whether he was play-acting or not, thought Harry, the effect was good. And that, said Slughorn, apparently coming back to earth, is what I shall be offering as a prize in this lesson. I love the Felix Felicis plot point. I do wonder... It seems like we have all these super useful potions that we learn about. Why, like Verita Serum, obviously, why isn't Felix Felicis used more often? I mean, I know you have to use it sparingly, but couldn't you give, like, a few drops to, like, Kingsley Shacklebolt while he's hunting Lord Voldemort and maybe he'll fucking succeed? I don't know. I mean, it's one of those things where, like, it's, it's like doing drugs. Like, it alters your mind and your sort of activities in a way that maybe isn't like fair or particularly healthy yeah but i mean if we're talking about like wizard rescue workers or like strategically vital military operations like you could probably make an exception for like you know one wizard at a time taking some felix felices right but then if the other side is doing that too i don't think it's one of those things where you're lucky in your like war it feels like it's one it's like a smaller scale kind of right. luck. It's like you're supposed to use it on like an ordinary day. Like that's the kind of spell it is. Okay. Or that's the kind of potion it is. It doesn't give you like superpowers. It just sort of like makes shit kind of work out for you, which is totally different. And I guess like, it's I don't like- think it's going to help you find and kill Lord Voldemort. It's just going to help you kind of like get through your day with no obstacles. Well, we can talk more about Felix Felicis as it develops. It's true. Uh, because I do wonder about some of its properties. Like, is it actually kind of warping, like, reality and affecting other people's actions or just yours? Yeah, I have, like, a butterfly effect question about it. Does it, like, yeah, does it impact other people's, like, lives and outcomes? Because that's, that's the other thing. That's a fucking wild potion, then. That's ridiculous. So, also... Well, we see this in the next chapter, so we don't have to get into it too much, but it genuinely might be mostly placebo. Mm. Like, who knows, honestly, because it works for Ron and he doesn't even take it. So maybe the thing that makes you feel lucky is being told, like, you will be lucky all day, which is, I believe, how luck works, period. I think people who feel, you know, 
people who sort of tell themselves it's like the secret like right. which isn't all the way real obviously like it doesn't dude it's not even like 10 percent real no but like lots of people have sort of success in changing their mindset by doing like visioning right all it right. doesn't make things happen it just like makes your mindset more positive and can do this actually reminds me a lot of something like the secret <laughs> No, if you envision yourself having a perfect day, you're more likely to have a perfect day, like barring some kind of catastrophe. All right. Your mindset changes. Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, you guys, I don't believe in the secret. But do I believe that people have success in changing how small things in their lives go by having better attitudes? Fuck yeah. I also know that I have a shitty attitude and it impacts a lot of things that happen to <laughs> me. So I figure the opposite is also probably true. All right. So this is just a lesson in the power of positive thinking. Kind of. Maybe. I mean, I'm sure it's like a real potion. But I'm just saying, like, it works as a placebo for Ron swimmingly. So while we're on the topic of potion making, let's talk a little about Harry's copy of Advanced Potion Making, Belonging to the Half-Blood Prince. Is it fair for Harry to be using these instructions? I don't see why not. I mean, they're just instructions. Yeah, they're just, like, in the margins. But Hermione is really pissed about this and thinks he's cheating, which I think is stupid. I mean, I guess he has an advantage, but it doesn't seem like it's an unfair advantage. I mean, it's a little unfair. He got the, like, extra special copy. Yeah, I guess it's that's not unfair. like As she points out, it's not exactly your own work. It's not his own work. He's just following a set of superior instructions. Right, so. but none of it is their own work. None of them are like figuring out on their own how to make a potion. They're following instructions. His instructions happen to be better. Yeah, that actually seems like it'd be a better lesson if you could like... Learn how to do like chemistry. Because I mean, that's what even cooking is. You're like, you're figuring out the properties of like different ingredients and then you can like make your own recipes. Salt, fat, acid, heat, I man. was just gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> but... I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. Yeah, same thing with, they're not learning, like, what is it about powdered moonstone that makes it an excellent... Well, presumably they are. Oh, actually, they yes, they did, get a, they did get an essay that was, like, properties of moonstone. Yeah, I think we just, that's, that's much like page. other yeah. elements of teaching that's off page. But, like you said, he takes a flyer. This is right. a total leap of faith. Which so, Ron points out. Yeah. One of the few good points Ron makes. So, <laughs> Harry on his own, figures out that something is useful and uses that. I don't think that's cheating. I just love this plot point and this particular item in these books because... You love text. I do love text, and it just, it harkens back. It's such a school feeling, especially if you went to kind of under-resourced public school, like I did, where you just did these ancient textbooks that have this window into the past in the form of... Just doodles and random notes that provide such, I don't know, just an enticing picture into, like... Someone else's school experience. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, uh, I love marginalia. And even, like, in a used bookstore where you find, like, people's, like, notes and... And sometimes I found that in novels where I'm, like... I get sort of sent on a different journey within a book based on the highlights and underlines of some random past reader actually my college mentor did a whole series of essays on marginalia that were really really beautiful it's something that he's obsessed with and talks about in all these different creative ways like what you can sort of learn and see and do 
with other people's notes and books because marginalia is like intertextual in a way that's really fun. I don't know if I have anything to add to that. I, I just love this, I love this plot element. So this does bring out kind of the worst in Hermione though. Because it's so interesting. She really is a creative, independent, interesting thinker. But sometimes she doesn't apply those skills to like lessons. She's so memorization and instructions based in school. And I guess that's because that's what Hogwarts instruction has like drilled into her. But it's not like Harry is hoarding these instructions. Right. He tells Hermione, hey, like put one clockwise turn in. And she's like, that's not what it says. And he's like, look, it's working. And she ignores him. So that's on her. I think in this case, it's just her competitive nature. Yeah, but she also is pedantic. Yeah. A lot of the time. Well, it's weird because she, when she learned about the house elves, she like kind of figured out that the book doesn't always contain the entire story. You can add to it. But now she's sort of reverting to the mean, I guess. I think you're right. I think it is also jealousy that he has an advantage that she doesn't. And she's used to being the best in the class. Yeah, she wanted to win. And it was a pretty fucking sweet prize, so... It's an amazing prize. But, I mean, Harry's gonna, like, use it for the good of the actual entire wizarding world. So, <laughs> it's fine. And Hermione would probably use it to, like, do well on a test that she was already gonna do well on. Also, so, like, frankly, I think Hermione would waste Felix Felicis. It's like, bitch, you had a time turner. Yeah. like, infinite Word. study time. <laughs> That's a good point. That is an unfair advantage if ever there's been one. She could just... She had infinite time. (laughs) So you're right. Fucking ridiculous, Hermione. Oh, I got... I had not thought of that. secondhand textbook with some scribbles in it that happened to give me good advice every now and then. You have the entirety of time and space at your disposal, (laughs) bitch. Word. All right, so the meat and potatoes of these chapters... The fucking Gaunts. With a howl of rage, Gaunt ran toward his daughter. For a split second, Harry thought he was going to throttle her as his hand flew to her throat. Next moment, he was dragging her toward Ogden by a gold chain around her neck. See this? He bellowed at Ogden, shaking a heavy gold locket at him, while Merope spluttered and gasped for breath. I see it, I see it, said Ogden hastily. Slytherins yelled Gaunt. Salazar Slytherins, we're his last living descendants. What do you say to that, hey? Mr. Gaunt, your daughter, said Ogden in alarm, but Gaunt had already released Merope. She staggered away from him back to her corner, massaging her neck and gulping for air. So, said Gaunt triumphantly, as though he had just proved a complicated point beyond all possible dispute. Don't you go talking to us as if we're dirt on your shoes. Generations of pure bloods, wizards all. More than you can say, I don't doubt. Yeah, the Gaunts have some uh, economic anxiety going, I would say. Oh my god, (laughs) this is like who the New York Times would be like, we went to Voldemort country and talked to the actual people who... Talked to Morphin and Marvolo. Yeah. <laughs> and they say they're still behind Voldemort no matter what. Uh, I guess chronologically that analogy doesn't make much sense, but pure blood country. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Slytherin country. Um, Slytherin voters. We talked to Slytherin voters. And, <laughs> Jesus. And they are, they're still 100% behind their man. Um. <laughs> this is, I mean, this is one of those classic examples of, this is a phenomenon that you see all over the world now and at many periods in the past of 
bigotry exacerbated by poverty and the idea that I sort of maintain my sense of frankly like humanity in really dire circumstances with the sort of at least I'm not them attitude yeah it's the, like the ultimate kind of white sharecropper wedge issue the outgroup right yeah mm-hmm yeah I would say this supports my theory that the wizarding civil wars are caused by the feeling of declining privilege among purebloods uh, whether or not that has anything to do with wizarding exchange rates, as I outlined way, way back during the seminal episode, Capital in the Wizarding World, I don't know. But definitely the characters in this book who are most aggrieved belong to like the formerly or still privileged classes who feel that that privilege is slipping away. And, you know, rolling... We criticize her a lot, but I think she grasps that aspect of, like, political conflict really well. It's, like, an interesting representation of, uh, populism, basically. Exactly. And the ability of the currently elite to take advantage of someone like the Gaunts who think they desperately deserve eliteness to kind of fight against the other probably the gaunts have more in common in some ways with like poor villagers and Buggleborns than like the malfoys right or like the descendants of the malfoys that would be alive at this time but you know the decision they make is to hate Muggleborns and muggles above all else and sort of position themselves as great ancient wizards even though they're completely abandoned by the wizarding world. Right. And totally ostracized by the whole world basically. Yeah, well I mean, yeah, there's there's so much resonance in these in this chapter with uh, the conversations that we're having today about like class and privilege and frankly like race relations even though it's not like a perfect analog, but uh it's interesting that she was writing about this in like the early 2000s. Yeah, but I mean, this has been resonant for fucking ever. This is like a let us now praise famous wizards situation, (laughs) you know? Only, I would say, less empathetic. She has some empathy, especially for Merope, but these are also bad people. I just want to underscore, like, fuck the gaunts, the men in this family in particular. And it is interesting that despite being from a completely different culture, you know, they still have sexism. So congratulations <laughs> to that, I guess. <laughs> they obviously still have incredibly rigid and fucked up gender roles in their family. Yeah, I like the clinging to the like historical talismans, uh, the ring and the necklace that are these like signifiers or to gaunt like signify a time when like wizarding was great basically well also the the use of parcel tongue to me is like really telling because it is their it's their ancient ancestral like blood link to slytherin himself and Mm -hmm. they still are incredibly invested in keeping it alive so it's very like our culture or whatever and it's totally anachronistic in the day and age in which they live like you know Ogden doesn't speak it but they're very invested in keeping parcel tongue kind of at the center of their world it seems like Morphin maybe only speaks parcel tongue yeah that's that's like, like 
they were brought up in a parcel tongue only household. Very much inferred, I think. I don't know if like that's a problem for the Gaunts because like preserving a language is not well, like inherently evil. No, I don't think it's inherently evil. No, I didn't mean that as right. it's evil. I'm just saying it's an interesting way that they stay connected to like an ancestry that is sort of no longer relevant in the modern wizarding world. Well, I mean, it's deeply relevant. They just want it to be more relevant than it is, I would say. Parseltongue is... Yeah, but Slytherin himself is still literally enshrined in Slytherin House. Like, they feel extremely aggrieved. And even, marginalized. Even, even though, though they're not. Like, well, it that's... still matters to a lot of wizards. Like, pureblood lines still matter to a lot of, like, powerful wizards, we're given to understand, from, like, the Malfoys and others. Uh, but they still feel on like the cultural outs. And I do think that's why they use parcel tongue. Right. Is to preserve their sense of like their inherited culture. But I mean the Malfoys are rich, but they feel similarly aggrieved in the same way that the Gaunts do, uh, even though they have like much more like actual like comfort and privilege. We can move away from this in a second because I know some people are not here for politics, but whatever. This is really fucking relevant to these books. Yeah, this is a very this is a very political chapter. This is a deeply political chapter, and this is a political war. Right. This is a war of deep held ideologies in the wizarding world, and those ideologies are mirrored today in a lot of ways. It's not obviously perfectly analogous in a lot of ways, but it's close enough that you can tell that J.K. Rowling is making a contemporary point. But, you know, these forces existed before, like, Trump was president. Well, and yeah, it's absolutely. incredibly foolish to say otherwise. Right. Yeah, I mean, nativism has always been... With, and nativism is ascendant. Yeah. And nativism is often ascendant among people who feel the most marginalized. Feel. Not are, but feel the most marginalized. And... Or feel like they are being... What's the... What's pushed the, um, out of the culture. What's the phrase, like... When, like, equality feels like oppression. Yeah. When you've been, like, privileged your entire, like, existence. Yeah, I mean, but I don't think that really applies to the Gaunts, because the thing that sucks about the Gaunts is that, like, they are actually living under incredibly dire, disturbing circumstances. Right. And that's another thing that's complicated about these particular culture wars, is, like, the Gaunts are left behind by the Wizarding World. Ogden only shows up at their house to be like, hey, you're in trouble. Nobody has sent fucking social services or like wizarding welfare services to these people. And granted, they seem like kind of like survivalist anti-government types. So I'm not saying they would accept them. Right. But like, for example, a thing that I find deeply fucked up is that they arrest Marvolo and Morphin and Merope is just like on her fucking own. No one is like, hey, there are services for you or like, here's where you can go. Like, clearly she's entirely economically dependent on her family. And they're just like, bye. And a victim of emotional and physical abuse. Yeah, clearly a lifelong victim of abuse who then, you know, we'll get to this in a second, but like perpetrates a great abuse, I would say. Lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of people who are victims of abuse don't go on to become perpetrators. I know that. That is a fundamental fact, and I'm not saying that this is all. But cycles of abuse continue, and part of Merope's choices comes from the fact that she is never shown true kind of like love and well, doesn't yeah. know what love looks like and makes decisions about how to 
invite love into her life that are unethical. Right. Well, to her, kind of love and loyalty is very coercive, I would say, is what she's been shown by right. And so Marvolo. she enters into a coercive relationship herself, coerces someone into it. Mm-hmm. Um, in a really fucked up way that again I think we're going to talk about that in a second the other thing is there's this whole so we don't usually go to Pottermore but there's this whole essay on Pottermore about how J.K. Rowling sort of decided that like muggle illnesses don't apply to wizards which is a question we've asked before and so she has answered that on her in the kind of extra textual material that is out there so, you know, like, wizards, like, can't die of cancer, basically, is what she says. But they can die of, like, dragon pox. Wizard cancer. Right. Um, or if they break their bones by just regular injuries, those are healable. But, like, because Mad-Eye Moody's was blown off by a spell, that's why he can't fix his that bone. And she's usually really good on this subject, but there's nothing in there about mental illness, which is shared between muggles and wizards. Yeah, Morphin is clearly suffering from some cognitive disabilities, it seems like. And mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. And we're given to understand, no, not given to understand. Dumbledore literally says it's because of like centuries of inbreeding, which is exactly the same for muggles. So the illnesses that she has pretty clearly introduced, even though she hasn't sort of like treated them with that much care in these chapters, are... I would say what we would think of as like muggle illnesses. So it just seems like a weird kind of like deviation from her thesis about wizard health. Also, Merope clearly has like trauma and like PTSD. There's lots and lots and lots of mental illness in these books that, as we've talked about, goes utterly untreated. Even though there's potions for all of this, it seems like. That's the other thing. They definitely have pharmaceuticals that could at least help someone with like depression and they just don't use them which is totally weird. But I just think Merope is someone you could help and no one does. And it's fucked up. It is fucked up. I'm also not sure Morphin should go to jail. No! I think Morphin needs rehabilitation. But, I mean, that's something that happens in the muggle world all the time. So we're not going to blame that. I mean, none of this is something you can obviously ascribe exclusively to wizards because this kind of shit happens in our country constantly. Like, Morphin's the last person who should be put in Azkaban and have, like, the sadness monsters, like, surround him 24-7. Morphin's got his own sadness monsters without the Dementors, clearly. Uh, So, ugh. Well, here's a wild thing also, is that Bob Ogden, who's a law enforcement officer just shows up in this totally bonkers situation completely by himself. Yeah, man. Also... This just seems like bad police work. Marvolo is, as we would say, known to law enforcement. He right. has pre- a history of muggle attacks. So, so he doesn't bring boy. any kind of backup or reinforcements. He doesn't in any way try to keep himself safe. I mean, whatever. He has a wand. <laughs> but these folks are clearly dangerous. Yeah, this is a... And it's a really weird choice for someone in law enforcement to make. Especially in like domestic disputes, which I'm given to understand are the most, often the most dangerous situations for cops are domestic violence kind of like calls. Yeah, well, I mean, this gets very, this is a very disturbing chapter. There's some like disturbing domestic violence in this chapter. Well, yeah, and and Bob Ogden finds himself in grievous danger 
because of that domestic violence because he tries to intervene which again is like what's really 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 dangerous for law enforcement when you get involved in these kinds of scenes. It's just really ridiculous that he shows up by himself with no like preparation whatsoever. Yeah. Just like walks into their house. (laughs) Uh, Truly awful decision making. So I do want to talk about love potions because we get two kind of views of them in these chapters. What the fuck? Yeah, love potions. These should be fucking illegal. They should be illegal. It is absolutely buck wild that Fred and George just sell these with no regulation. Not to, you can't buy them if you're under 16. Okay. I mean, 16 is definitely not old enough to buy a date rape drug. No, no age is, is old, old enough, enough to, to buy, buy a to date buy rape one of drug. these things. Yeah. Uh, like a long-term date rape drug also. The ones Fred and George sell are for 24 hours at a time. Okay. 24 hours is a lot of yeah, time lot to do time. a bunch of non-consensual shit with someone who should not be under a spell when they're making decisions about their romantic and sexual, Oof. like, lives. Yeah, well, I mean... Because presumably, lots of wizards over 16 have sex with people who are under love potions. Yeah. Like, let's just say that. There's obviously no sex in these books. Well, there is, because Merope gets pregnant. So, yeah, she is fucking Tom Riddle while he's under a love potion, which is not consensual sex yeah it's a rape i mean i would say so it's a it's definitely coerced sex oh that's dark it's awful it's it's really ridiculous that these are portrayed in the way that they are as like kind of normalized and we're meant to think that tom is kind of an asshole for running right I think they use the word abandoned. Abandoned. And for it's like, running out on... No, he leaves not, an abusive relationship. Right. Like, he didn't... He has every fucking right to leave this relationship. He was... He entered into it non-consensually. Right. And he's he's not a nice person. But no. he doesn't deserve... To, he doesn't deserve that. It makes total fucking sense that Tom Riddle wants nothing to do with a child conceived this way. It's... Not great in terms of how Lord Voldemort grows up, but Tom Riddle is not in the wrong here. Whew. Poor Lovo. I mean, his childhood is awful. Yeah. It's really awful. Obviously, that doesn't excuse anything. No, it doesn't excuse anything. But but... this is where we learn that this is a really sad story. Yep. The story of Lord Voldemort's life is deeply tragic. Merope is a... She does wrong. She's a, still a very tragic Lots figure. and lots and lots of people who do wrong are also victims. There, there are obviously cycles of violence and abuse in lots of lives. But this is not okay. It's just, it's weird how we go from this, which is basically a rape, to love potions becoming a, later in the book a kind of comedic plot point. Yeah, it's a gag. Yeah. Which is very... It's very 16 Candles later on. Yeah, it is interesting because it's one of these plot lines that just wouldn't fly in 2018. No. And Um, it's funny because these books weren't written very long ago. No, I know. But they take place in the 90s when this is definitely a more kind of like... Would have been a more acceptable and more likely... To be accepted as comic plot point. Yeah. This is very 16 Candles. Yeah, well, it's just interesting how much the dialogue around consent has evolved. In a way that I deeply appreciate. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's... This shit is non-consensual. It's dramatic how differently we are discussing this now than we probably would have, like, two years ago, even. 
Although I think we probably would have pegged this as non-consensual. No, but. I think so. But, you know, a thing that I find interesting, just to go back to, like, lots of conversations we've been having about gender, is, like, obviously with exceptions, but in the muggle world, what we're seeing is mostly male perpetrators of these kinds of abuses. Certainly in kind of the Me Too era, the main folks being focused on as perpetrators are male. And almost all of the kind of love potion perpetrators in these books are female. So there's definitely a lot of weaponized female sexuality that J.K. Right. Rowling writes about. Like, there's, there aren't men using love potions in these books. The sexual aggressors in these books are female. Are almost always women. Even, you know, the scene where Rita Skeeter, like, pulls Harry into the closet. There's a lot of... There's a lot of sexual overtones there. Yeah. Where she's sucking on her quill and... She's got him cornered. And the boys are portrayed as really clueless and innocent and sort of like under the thrall of sexually aggressive women. Cho, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, not sexually aggressive, but Cho is the one that's meant to be more sort of like experienced and knowing and Harry is And she waits to like catch him like after class. Yeah, it is Lavender is definitely the aggressor in the relationship with Ron. So I just- We see her giggling again and uh, like making eyes at Ron. Oh yeah, uh, but in in a way that's meant to be seen as rather predatory, frankly. Uh, So she's- really bad on gender ah, because jk i'm sorry yeah the men the men are just not that interested in in girls in these books in, in a, a way, way that's that really unbelievable completely unbelievable unless wizard sexuality is incredibly different than the sort of like muggle like the gendered understanding of muggle sexuality and Every single piece of cultural conditioning and messaging is different in the wizarding world, which is clear that it's not because they have the same gender roles. They have a patriarchy and still somehow women are almost always the sexual aggressors in these books. What the fuck, J.K. Rowling? Maybe that was just safer to write for her than to have like a kind of skeezy Ron Weasley. But it seems like Ron would be way more likely to slip someone a love potion than vice versa. I mean, I don't think Ron, as we understand him, would do that. But certainly Malfoy. Yeah. And like Malfoy is being relentlessly pursued by like Pansy Parkinson. They're all such a weird aspect of these books. It's totally weird. That's bizarre. I know. Like Romilda Vane is... Well, she tries to slip later in the book the love potion to Harry. Which then ends up going to Ron. Right. But like, yeah, it's wild that it's all women. Do we see an instance of a man giving a woman a love potion? I don't think so. But maybe that would have been way too loaded to write into the book. This is fucking loaded. It is loaded, you're right. And she this is just not considered loaded because her ideas about women are fucking weird. Uh, I'm trying to think of an instance. Where, where there's a, a male sexual aggressor, a man aggressively pursues a woman. I mean, not e- maybe not even an aggressor, but a man like aggressively courting a woman. Hagrid courts what's her face? Um, Madame Maxime. Hagrid courts Madame Maxime, but even Tonks and Lupin. Yeah, you're Tonks right. Tonks is the one gunning for the romantic relationship, and Lupin is the one demurring. And, and ha- Hagrid talks- can tell that there's a mutual attraction. Like, yeah. Hagrid, that's a pretty respectful courtship. Oh, no, no, I know. I wasn't suggesting that that's a disrespect. Right. I was just trying to name any situation in which a man is the court-er. Harry moons over Cho, but in a kind of 
like he's definitely into Cho, but he doesn't. He's doesn't very like, afraid of actually spending time with her, and doesn't really like spending time with her, right? And he certainly is terrified at the idea of doing anything physical. He's deeply not the physical aggressor. Crumb pursues Hermione. Yeah. In a pretty respectful way, though. Again, yeah. I mean, other than their age difference, which is like a little weird. Tonks falls in love with Lupin. I'm not actually meaning to suggest that Tonks is is an aggressor in that situation. Tom, Tonks and Lupin fall in love with each other. Wait. Who? The two most important relationships in the book are a man, like, desperately pursuing a woman. It's James pursuing and Lily. And Snape pursuing Lily. Right. Like, but- and they both... But even then, definitely cross the line. Yeah, but even then, they're doing it in this way that's seen as like noble, like going after their deepest heart's desire in a way that they sort of deserve to. And it's like a tragedy that she can only pick one, yeah. even though they're both garbage. Whereas kind of. the like the men, or whereas the women going after men are doing something sort of like skeezy or like unreasonable. Dang, dude. Oh my god, she's so bad on this shit. <laughs> she's just, I can't believe how bad on this shit we're finding her to be. Ugh. I'm disappointed by that because I continue to love these books. And I'm really profoundly enjoying Half-Blood Prince. But every time we have one of these conversations, I just like want to take a bath. I'm just like <laughs> shuddering over this. It's horrible. Yeah, I mean. But I, think about I don't, it. I don't know what to say. Like, in the real world. I'm sorry, but like we are not hearing story after story after story emerging of like there there have been some stories and they've been really really upsetting, but they are few and far between when they're women using their power to like abuse men. Yeah, well, yeah. This is all Obviously that happens. The opposite is much 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 more culturally right. prominent. Yeah. Rolling, I think as a rule, is very suspicious of women's motivations. She's also unless it relates profoundly suspicious of women's sexuality. Yeah, unless it relates to their actions vis-a-vis their children. She seems in to which have, case they are above reproach. She seems to have this sense of like feminine wiles that's very kind of like creepy femme fatale. Like it's just really retrograde. Like, women, like, using their femininity to, like, get what they want. Like, even Fleur is portrayed as having kind of hoodwinked Bill. Until we do later see, and it's really unfair that Fleur gets portrayed like that at first. Because Fleur and Bill are deeply in love with each other, and it's mutual. Right. But the way that their relationship is portrayed is that Fleur has somehow, like, pulled one over on the whole family and, like, gotten Bill to fall in love with her. Even the idea of Vila's is really sexist. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, it's ironic because these books are kind of about reappropriating, like, the sinister witch and wizard imagery. and But that doesn't extend to how, like, literal witches, like, go about their, their like, romantic pursuits, yeah. you know? No, this plays into a lot of really dark stereotypes. About, about witches. About witches and about... I mean, about and en- female and sirens and enchantresses. Yeah. yeah. No, it's very, I mean, it reminds me of like Ursula in The Little Mermaid, who, by the way, is the hero of that story. <laughs> but uh, that's a different conversation. Anyway, I we got to move on from this. We could talk we about do. this forever. Did we even script this in no. the notes? No. Wow, this just like we organically just emerged. Yeah. Oof. It's really upsetting. Dude, the themes are actually becoming adult. 
Well, they've always been a doll. There's a lot of murder. That's true. Hella murder. <laughs> um, but the, no, the 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 sexual and romantic themes are getting really, really tangled and frankly upsetting. Right. Well, I mean, it's hard because she's now dealing with teenagers. Yeah, it's true. But yet, but it's... she's dealing with these like bizarro alternate universe teenagers. Maybe Dumbledore is slipping in the mash like hormone suppressants or something for like some men. kind of magical anti-horniness potion but only for men apparently yeah maybe it has the opposite effect on women that sure maybe no, that's what's happening that's absolutely not what's happening <laughs> well ugh, on that horrible note i guess who's your unsung hero my unsung hero my unsung hero is katie bell the last remaining member of the original excellent champion Quidditch squad who tells Harry that he has to make her try out even though Harry wants to just give her a slot on the team because Katie believes in fucking, like, merit. It's true. And And equity. Yeah, and Katie cares about the performance of the Gryffindor Quidditch team. She tells Harry, hey, many great teams have been ruined because, like, they just keep playing the same players. Somebody better than me might be out there, so... Katie is taking one for the team. Although, obviously, she's going to make the team because she's a great Quidditch player. Her position is irrelevant because only the Seeker matters, but whatever. Fair point. We've been there. My other unsung hero is the Adder that Morphin is just, like, reading his creepy poetry to. (laughs) That poor fucking Adder is just like, I don't know what's happening here. This man can speak my language. Uh, He's saying a bunch of weird shit. Please just let me slither away. I don't (laughs) want to be nailed to a door. Are snakes evil in these books? I don't know. We can't really get all the snake, all the parcel mouths, except for Harry are like evil. But like the snake that gets out of the zoo in London helps Harry. Yeah. It's just like, thanks, amigo. Uh, and he seems nice. I know. These snakes... I think these snakes are just, unfair to women and snakes. Snakes... Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> uh, or women snakes, as in the new Fantastic Beast movie. Oh, man. Which, that we Ooh. can't go... We can't go there either. But, I mean, these snakes are just like, I'm out here trying to be a reptile. Please don't drag me into this Slytherin bullshit. Whenever <laughs> they see a person who can talk to them, I'm sure they just want to slither away, because they're like... I don't want to fuck with this guy. Please remove me from this narrative. Yeah, they're all fucking assholes, except for that nice kid with glasses at the zoo. (laughs) He was chill. More humans like that, please. My unsung hero, despite some dubious choices in his scene, is Bob Ogden, who, to his credit, really does try to defuse the horrible situation he finds himself in and wants to help Merope. And, I don't know, it's just like trying to do his dang job with these wacky people. He's pretty brave. He is pretty brave. And uh, he sticks up for Muggleborns. He's like, dude, that is irrelevant to this conversation. He does. It's true. I appreciate that. I guess we're meant to... He is a Muggleborn, obviously. Oh, I don't know. I think he's just not engaging. That's true. I don't We. I don't think we have any idea. Well, he doesn't a have a kind of strange pure blood name. That's true. His name is Bob. His name so is he Bob must Ogden. be Muggleborn. <laughs> Although I guess the Weasleys have pretty normal names. That's true. But that's they sort of the Catholic like... Names. All the pure bloods have like... The like people that are really... The pure blood thing all have just like very really wizardy ostentatious names. names like fucking Scorpius or whatever. Yeah. So this week's episode is brought to you by Acid Pops. They'll burn your fucking tongue off. 
The audiobook clips that you heard are courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. They are from Jim Dale's wonderful performance of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Do your thing. Find us on wherever it is that you find podcasts. Rate, review, subscribe if you're into that sort of thing. We're on social media at Quibbler Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us DMs or tweets or whatever. You can also email us at quibblerpodcast at gmail.com. You can sign up for our ostensible newsletter at tinyletter.com slash quibblerpodcast. We will occasionally send one to you not too often. Next week, we are reading the chapters called Hermione's Helping Hand and Silver and Opals. Talk to you then. Thanks, amigos. Do you remember me telling you we are practicing nonverbal spells, Potter? Yes, said Harry stiffly. Yes, sir. There's no need to call me sir, Professor. Fatality. The man in rags was now advancing on Ogden, knife in one hand, wand in the other. Now, look, Ogden began, but too late. There was a bang. It's morphin' time! Dragon sword! I call on the power of the dragons!